A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Torquase Dyson, who uses abstraction as a means of exploring what she describes as the ways black and brown bodies perceive and negotiate space as information. Painting is the fundament of Torquase's practice, but she uses a variety of media, from drawing and painting through sculpture and architecture to community practices and collaborative performance. The result is a body of work whose language is diagrammatic and scientific, yet expressive and sensorial. It deconstructs natural and built environments in relation to the histories and legacies of enslavement, colonialism, capitalism and extractivist practices, while addressing the climate emergency and climate justice. Torquase was born in Chicago in 1973. She studied first at Tougaloo College in Mississippi, one of the US's historical black colleges and universities, where she majored in sociology and double minored in social work and fine art. And it was there that she first began to consider how the dynamics of geography, architecture and infrastructure were central to black histories, as well as embarking on influential travel after graduating from Tougaloo, including in 2002 visiting Elmina Castle in Ghana, where African people were held to be enslaved during the transatlantic slave trade. She went on to study art, first at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and then at Yale School of Art. Based on her studies, travels and lived experiences, Torquase arrived at the evolving concept that is at the core of her work, black compositional thought, in which she explores human-made structures and geographies, including waterways, architecture and forms of cartography, and reflects on how they might be inhabited by black bodies and represent sites for networks of liberation. Among the visual forms that emerge from this theory are what she calls hypershapes, apparently abstract geometric metric forms that relate to specific historical figures from the 19th century, all of whom used various strategies to escape their enslavement. The rectangle signifies Henry Box Brown, who had himself mailed in a wooden box from Virginia where he was enslaved to abolitionists in Philadelphia. The triangle evokes the story of Harriet Jacobs, the writer of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, who lived for seven years in a garret of that shape under the roof of her grandmother's house before escaping to the north. And the form of a curve represents the hull of a ship in which Anthony Byrne stowed away to freedom in Boston. Torquase has described these forms as geometry culled from the history of black liberation. And those forms appear in multiple manifestations. The strange fruit paintings of 2015 resemble architectural landscaping plans or geometric maps, and the circles in them reflect known lynching sites in the southern US. The water table paintings from 2017 specifically relate to Henry Box Brown's story, and the rectangle appears in numerous painterly manifestations amid liquid expanses of black paint. For the project 1919 Black Water, Torquase made sculpture, paintings and drawings responding to the 100th anniversary of what's known as the Red Summer of 1919, a period of heightened racial unrest across the United States. She evoked the heroism, ingenuity and ultimate tragedy of an episode on the segregated waters of Chicago and Lake Michigan. In July 1919, five black teenagers made a homemade raft which floated close to the unmarked boundary between the black and white beaches. A white man threw stones at the defenceless boys and one, Eugene Williams, was struck in the head and drowned. Meanwhile, in projects like Liquid A Place and I Can Drink The Distance, Plantation are seen in two acts at Pace Galleries London and New York Galleries in 2021 and 2019 respectively, her environments became architectures for choreographic, poetic and musical performance and spoken word events, deepening their context and expanding their reference points. Indeed, many of Torquase's works act as catalysts for discussion and wider creative action. In 2016, she designed and built Studio South Zero, or SSC, a solar-powered mobile studio in which communities learn and make art about the environment. SSC in turn inspired her experimental project, the Winterwells Drawing School for Environmental Liberation, where she zones in on the environmental implications of her theories of space, architecture and the infrastructure of extraction economies. Among the most striking projects yet to fuse all the myriad aspects 
architects of Torquoise's practice was bird and lava Scott Joplin, made for the triennial public art exhibition Counterpublic in St. Louis between April and July of 2023, which you'll hear her discuss in depth. Torquoise has built one of the richest bodies of work in contemporary art through means that might seem counterintuitive, addressing hugely complex subjects within the historically freighted language of abstraction. And this is where I began our conversation. She's described an aspect of her practice as surviving abstraction through abstraction. What does she mean by this? I've really grown into that comment over the years. I think I wrote it in 2016 or 17 or something. Yes, that's right, yeah. And I think I've really grown into it. It was a part of an article I was writing. And when I write, it's between essay and prose. It's something that sort of came out of me as I was putting down these thoughts. And later on, I felt how true it was. And abstraction in its different forms, political social, environmental, scientific, physical, um, in all its different registers. What I was directly talking about then was the abstraction of black consciousness, was the abstraction of the black body, was um, a sort of um, abstraction of who we are as human beings. And oftentimes I feel myself uh, surviving that within a really huge condition of anti-black violence and you know, the resistance towards indigeneity or re-indigeneity. So all of these things are forms of abstraction that um, have concrete impacts, but really are um, something that we deal with every day. And obviously the, the form that the work takes, as you describe it, is abstraction, so that there are concrete relations to histories of abstraction in the work. Okay. But the interesting thing is that so much of the language around abstraction as it's been written about through canonic art history is about an absence of content in a way, about form over content and so on. But the interesting thing is that for you, that abstraction is allied to almost like maximum content, you know, the fullest content in a way, the most human content you possibly could have. Can you talk about that kind of tension between historic abstraction and your particular form of it? Well, I think that historic abstraction has been a a game of white men and their consciousness is assumed, right? Their humanity is is assumed in the sort of great narrative of what it means to define what a human is, to define how a human um, has a tension between consciousness and physicality. So I think that even though that history has a condition of not directly thinking about consciousness or context in terms of a politic, I think it's there. I just think it's assumed and hadn't been written about. So I don't necessarily agree that the history of abstraction is without a kind of deep subjectivity that I just think that that itself, that, that writing itself, or it tends to be an abstraction in it, or, or kind of assumed, and in it there's a condition of white supremacy. So I um, understand the way that that condition was siloed because the history of um, abstraction is a huge silo with, you know, the the rest of the world that was making and involving itself in abstraction. It's without that input in, in the canon. And on the other hand, I find reading about histories of abstraction often useful in a way that um, is not necessarily tension but it's definitely a level of refusal that I am sort of built with because I, you know, I don't operate on the condition of assumed consciousness or humanity, and I don't operate on the condition. But I can, as a black person, sort of live with that connection of having a consciousness and not always thinking about abstraction as a tool for the politic. So I think that I'm fortunate to have that sort of discursive potential in myself where I can use those histories when I need them and extract from them when I need them, then have this whole other level prolific condition of abstractions that people of colour have been dealing with since the beginning of time. I'd like you to tell me a little more about your process because I know that you've worked on the floor and therefore, to a certain extent, when you're pouring, I don't know how to what extent there is a direct 
sense in which you are thinking also of people like Helen Frankenthaler and her pouring in the 50s or whatever. And I know that that liquidity is so central to your work. Hey, hey. Your hey, process hey. sounds really intriguing in terms of its flexibility, in, how, in terms of how you use that liquidity. Sure. But it's interesting in that sort of broader historic context, right? Okay. When I stand in front of a, a pour of Helen Frankenthaler, I'm really receiving the immediacy, right? I'm receiving this sort of visceral moment. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in senses, and I'm interested in the way multiple senses can operate at the same time. So when I see those objects, I'm listening, I'm looking, I'm absorbing, and having those things sort of happen to my mind simultaneously. With my work, I'm thinking about drenching. I'm thinking about water as it pertains to soaking. I'm thinking about light. I'm thinking about layers of really thin sort of underpaintings. So for me, thinking about the pouring is really trying to operate in the condition of water as it is, right? This sort of clear liquid that is affected by all kind of chromatic systems. And then I lay the water down over and over again on top of each other, and I come up with this um, atmospheric condition that's also very immediate. So I think about Helen Frankenthaler's paintings as very flat, and I'm interested in moving from a flatness to a depth, understanding the um, immediacy of the work at all times. Yeah. There's a really interesting, wonderful discussion, in fact, between you and Christina Sharp online, where you are very powerfully talking about the experience of an enslaved man who climbs back onto a slave ship having been thrown overboard and you're talking about liquid and wood in that moment and it seems to me that one of the things that your work does is engage with directly with those histories it's about materials and the materials of art in relation to the materials of historic injustices and so on well not necessarily the material I don't think that I bring a lot of meaning from materials. I think I bring with materials a condition of looking or ocular condition and a condition of space and composition. So I don't use wood to point to wood or I don't use red to point to red. I don't use rocks or stones or a sort of plastic or material condition first. I I know it's... um, in the work and it's to be read with the work, but it's not the primary condition of focus. So I really, I hold back and I I guess I move forward and hold back and I sort of oscillate between conditions of looking and conditions of composition to centralize my work or centralize the focus on what does it mean to look and move, right? What does it mean to have vision within the condition of distance, right? Or immediacy. So it's not that I'm trying to use wood to talk about a hull of a ship or ship or use water to talk directly about the ocean, right? I'm using these um, materials to get at other senses that are much more about an interiority, right? So when I do use a sort of, or I think about the haptic or I think about haptic conditioned and materials, then I go to something like a graphite, right? And I know that the sort of graphite materials have a condition of that sometimes it's matte and sometimes it can be more reflective. Uh, but when graphite gets to looking like something like ground or earth, I push back from that as well. So you don't want too literal association being between material and subject matter in a way or too literal a kind of idea of the condition of a particular material. Right. It just it's just not how I've worked. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's if if that were to come to me as an artist and I'd move in that direction, uh, it just hasn't come to me to work that way. Yeah. You've mentioned senses a couple of times. There's this word that you use a lot, which is sensoria. Mm-hmm. Again, I'd like you to unpack that a bit for us, because it seems to me you engage the senses in multiple senses, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So you engage the senses in a way that is complicated. Your work is not just about vision. 
it is absolutely about a full engagement. As you mentioned, the haptic there, your work's incredibly tactile in the sense that you want to reach out. I want to touch the materials in your work, you know. But also, of course, you use sound. So tell me more about Sensoria, this idea of Sensoria, because it's an intellectual property as well as a sense property, right? Absolutely. Um, I have a real fidelity to activating and exploring, you know, my mind, body, brain. And I think that I'm compelled to do that in the work so much because in the world that we live in, everything is built to not undermine it, but also um, not exercise it. So making and belonging to the work that I make, I, I don't think I make work and then sort of let it go out into the world. I, I keep a kind of, I would say, like a nice thread to it because I think I'm responsible for it. And in that way... I have got to really exhaust the possibility of my own senses, my own sensoria or senses and overlap them with other senses so that the plurality exists there. Right. So if I can make something that in my own practice, when I'm drawing and I'm painting or I'm thinking about a form that can activate my memory and can activate my sense of touch and my sense of movement and the idea of looking and the idea of wondering and wandering and the idea of deep stillness up against something that may have a more rapid pace. That all of these ideas of um, the simultaneity of the senses, I'm trying to push myself in the work to get there. That's another reason why when I think I see something I recognize, I try to push through it, right? So I, I try to go beyond it. And because I'm interested in freedom, environment, movement, as a maker, I can end up making something that looks like ground. I can make something that looks like architecture. I can make something that looks like something that's familiar or recognizable. I mean, I think that's healthy. And as you understand, with this idea of sensoria, this plurality, I understand that there's room for invention and in, in expanding what humans have in the brain and mind relationship have done with our senses and our bodies, right? So maybe it's sometimes a practice of me proving myself to myself, that I can hold on to my senses, so that I can, I can have them operate simultaneously and I can get myself there, almost like a musician, right? Right. So I can get myself there by practicing and practicing. So if I work my way to that space in the studio, I think I've done something that I've not recognized. I've made a cliff for myself to then jump off of, you know, so... That's really interesting because, and it's really interesting talking about that idea of discipline because so much of a musician's life is about discipline. And often that isn't something which is stressed in terms of art making because there are so many ideas bound up with things like genius and sort of intangible ideas. But actually so much about art making is about discipline, isn't it? And about about that kind of rigour that you were just discussing. I think so. I think that I found my space, right? So I've been an artist for a while and I found my space my way of working, I am now able to focus that rigor, right? I'm able to really focus it. And as I focus it, the practice and trying to make it the highest level of execution possible. And that means making at the level of the senses or sensoria where you've exhausted the possibility of what you know about your own self, right? Or what you know about what you think you know. Right. Yeah, I think it's much about you know, making sure that I don't take for granted the act of creativity. It's I don't think this is something that um, Cecil Taylor talks about. You know, this discipline and creativity and practice is a real thing for me. Let's talk about black compositional thought, this sort of overarching concept that influences your work. It produces things that you describe as hypershapes. Mm-hmm. And, and it relates to three very specific shapes and three very specific people. Can you tell us more? When I think about black compositional thought as a structure, right? So when I found, like I mentioned before, when I found my way of making and thinking about built worlds, let's say, I needed something to really organize these histories in a way that still spoke about you know, living and breathing and moving, right? So I found black compositional thought by way of understanding. I don't want to say understanding because I'm not 
quite there yet, and I may never be. Right. But trying to comprehend the infrastructure of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, different conditions of colonization, different conditions of invasion versus colonization, and the ways in which dispossession happens with the system on large scales and small scales. And really, Mabel Wilson points me to this really directly, that the institutions that have caused these catastrophes operate at different scales, right? Whether it's the scale of engineering, the ways in which the streets were paved and moved, the ways in which architecture was built, the ways in which plantations were laid out, that's a form of design and engineering. The way the ships happen through the trade, that's a level of water planning, right? So all of these things are happening with the white imagination. So as this is going on, I understand that liberation had to occur you know, in the mind, in the idea of thoughts of places that were unfamiliar. So black compositional thought is a, it's a structure that enables me to regard moving in the unknown, in the indeterminable, in these spaces of built environments that are concrete with the kind of consciousness that is extraordinary year after year. And, and I understand with the condition of complete torture. So to move in sort of always thinking and always being under existential conditions and always being under threat of breaking up families, losing your body, all of these conditions, how do you even imagine trying to keep your mind together to move in a direction? So black compositional thought says, hey, this is a subject for me, right? This is my container that I'm interested in sort of exploring. So the hypershape conditions were also a way to fall into the intimacy of these stories, right? So someone like a Harriet Jacobs, you know, really isolating herself over time allowed me to think about breath and movement and air and seasons and our history. So when I established Black Compositional Thought, is this sort of rubric to work under, is this sort of phenomenological condition. I needed something to ground me into a making process that had to do with form that could then express my interest in movement, in motion, in rigor, right? I had to put something in the container. I had to put an equation in the container or a discipline or a ritual in the container to then operate um, with. So the hypershapes really helps me operationalize black compositional thought, right? And because there were so many liberation stories, then I can sort of be discursive about the work, right? So the hypershapes come into a formation, in a formation that I've used oftentimes as a trapezoid with a curvilinear line, right? The sort of that shape. So that's where I sort of live, right, in that space as an artist where I need a, a structure, a sort of way to develop meaning in my life and in my work. And within that structure, belief system, then I can talk about these uh, masterful, quotidian ways people self-liberate on every scale. So then the work becomes, as I'm in it, it's all of this um, information that I then sort of get to work with. At my highest level, everything disappears, but I've trained my mind and my brain and my body to operate with that kind of discipline. And so that when I am working in the condition of improvisation, it's all in it and never goes away. There's no way I can make work without black freedom in mind. It just doesn't exist and because I can't exist and I would not exist without black liberation in the minds of my ancestors. And in my contemporaries, it just wouldn't work, so. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Mary Lovelace O'Neill. I first encountered... Her whale paintings at Tougaloo College in Tougaloo, Mississippi, where I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And David Driscoll had introduced her um, to me, and I had gone to hear her talk. And 
saw these paintings in our auditorium and was simply blown away. I'd never seen anything like them. I'd never seen a woman like her making painting like, like this in person. We had been deeply embedded in Samella Lewis's work in art history, but to see Mary Lovelace in person in her paintings in, on a screen, not in person, but on a screen, that large, and she was like, whales fucking. I was just, and the paintings were genius, right? And she, I mean, they still are. I, I just still get wound up when I think about them and remember them and see them now in person. Well, that's so nice. I mean, it, I, I can imagine, because is it right, you, you went originally to Tugali, you were, is that when you were still sort of thinking you were going to study sociology and social work and so on? So was, was that almost the moment you became an artist in a way, or the moment that set you on a path? It was. It was the moment that I said that this is what is possible. I'm an artist, I think, because of sociology, social work, these lines of study, nothing ever clicked with me. So I was sort of tumbleweeding around. And I was working, like Miss Gilbert, who was my painting teacher at Tougaloo, you know, I stayed an extra year. I was there four years, and I stayed an extra year to give myself that fifth year. And I decided to take art classes. And I was in the art departments of making because it was something I learned that I had a propensity towards. So if you set up a bowl of fruit in front of me, I discovered that I could then draw that bowl of fruit. So within that time period, I would go home and say, hey, everybody, look at this apple that I can see. I have something. I'm valuable. I can like draw this apple or something. So I was doing that. But then when I saw Mary Lovelace, and I must say, I was drawing apples, but then I fell into my true self was an apple and then the tumbleweed. Even in the art department, I was sort of tumbling around, <laughs> doing all these things and sort of squirreling around, as my friend calls me. <laughs> but when I saw Mary Lovelace, it was a condition of sensoria. Like, this is pure, pure expression, you know, around something that was about wonder. And I just said, that's where I want to go. I want to be in the space of uh, a sort of black power and black wonder and observation and articulation of something that I've seen and feel a way about. Like I have feelings, I'm intense. And if painting can absorb these intensities that humans have trouble absorbing oftentimes, I can do that, right? So that moment, her work who she is still pushes me um, to keep going because it's, um, you know, a good painting is almost an impossible thing to make. I'm sure. But there are fantastic paintings. And I'm on the road to operating in relationship to that, you know. Uh, Which historical artist do you turn to the most? Beverly Buchanan, Picasso. Oh, goodness, so many. Um, Ed Reinhardt. Uh, I'll say Tony Smith oftentimes, depending on where I am in the problems in the studio. Tony Smith has been really helpful to think about the rigor behind the hypershapes, right? So to see him go from or operate from the tetrahedron to something like smoke or, you know, any of the objects that he makes from this articulation that has helped me also in his book on drawing. So things like that, you know, so I think about, Someone like a David Driscoll, who's a figurative painter who has so much emotion in those paintings, mm. or someone like a Derek Forjor, who has so much play in color and texture. So my head just sort of moves all around, but I think that um, what happens is I sort of mind these artists that influence me and I set them up in my own studio to boost me forward in a way. And and they provide you with different sources for different forms of moving forward, I guess. I mean, in the sense that I imagine like Tony Smith, as you say, like that sort of architectonic quality that your work has, he explored that in a really interesting way. And I suppose you can draw on aspects of the way he approached that. But again, there's a really interesting tension there between the way that he would have dealt with certain types of content and the way that you do and how distinctive those approaches might be? I think he was looking for something architectural that the United States, the U.S. thinking white supremacy could not give. Right, interesting, yeah. So when my teacher at one point wrote an interesting article about Tony and how he understood between Eastern ideas of mindfulness with a sort of, I want to say almost 
paganistic relationship to being and belonging to the earth. So I think he transversed these things that did not service what he wanted inside of himself. You know, and some of this is from what I'm reading and some of this is from what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't think that it's as empty, Tony Smith is empty conceptually as he is perceived to be. I think that there was a desire to reach a certain kind of phenomenological experience in his work that was giving to him. He was very different than the um, artist of his time, right? He was very intent on, I think, a kind of specific rigor that was almost a spiritual practice and a wonder around environment and belonging to the planet that I thought was quite poetic and, and powerful, one of the people that inspired me as well is his daughter, Kiki Smith. When yeah. I, my first trip to New York and my first, I saw one of her exhibitions. This was way before I knew her father. This was, you know, coming off of VCU, my first year of VCU right out of Tougaloo. So when I, we make a field trip like all undergrads do to New York and we're roaming Chelsea and I walk in from Mississippi in my mind, because I'm a Tougalooan, mm. I see Kiki Smith and I'm like, what is this? The relationship to, you know, Tougaloo was on a plantation and the relationship between what does it mean to be sentient beings on that plantation and Kiki Smith, even though they're completely different ends of the spectrum, there was something in there. So I'm not sure that those two figures in our present and our history are so far off. They're not close necessarily, but they're not so far off either. There's a resonance there that I think that I, again, I'm able to benefit or extract from in a very healthy and I think inspiring way. While you were talking about contemporary artists, which other contemporary artists do you most admire? Radcliffe Bailey, his handwork, his paintings, like full on paintings, mm-hmm. unbeatable. Like his handwork on those surfaces are just I think unbeatable. Bethany Collins, I think her paperwork and her this sort of interstitial space between storytelling, memory and reaching out those paper embossed works, the way you have to get so close up on them to read them and to understand what they're saying, and you find out it's a, it's a black person looking for another black person. These quantum leaps, you know, in a way that happens in our work. Well, so I, I'm a big admirer of Elson Kiefer. Uh-huh. You know, where you think about those things up close and personal and the ways he's taken on architecture and thinking about poetics of the body, Doris Elcetto, I, I mean, this is just, this, we can go on and on with <laughs> right. this. I was at um, Glenstone yesterday, and I saw these Richard Serres, these um, large cylinders, Michael Heiser, very interested in, and his father. Most of the work that I'm interested in, most of the artists that I'm interested in, tend to have a relationship with their parents or something about what I'm finding out as I look at them and I look at their name on the list there's something about inheritance in there and something about belonging to something that was given to you and taking it further. There's something in there as well. I'm a big fan of Kevin Beasley's sound work. Yeah. Wars Bay is my closest ally and you know, and thinking about what does it mean to execute at the highest level possible research, the the commitment to form is just sort of an unrelenting thing. I'm interested in that. There's a really lovely video, actually, you made with Dia about Liufan. And there's... Oh, Liufan, yes. Where I'm going tonight to honour him. Ah, uh, OK. Well, he... Um, when you're talking about Liufan, there were a couple of lovely phrases that you used, which really seem to speak to your work, as far as I'm concerned. One of them is about the precarious encounters in his work mm-hmm. and also about the poetics of proximity, because I'm really aware in your work about how it's almost like the negative spaces or the spaces that that are called negative space are, mm-hmm. you know, are so crucial to the kind of balance in the work, as well as the sort of physical materials that are there, both in the paintings and sculptures. I'm so glad that you asked me about Mr. Lee. Ben Ligon has his book on encounters, right? Mm-hmm. And that language, encounter, refusal, you know, it's been around for a while, and I'm really interested in it. But I think when I see some of Mr. Lee's work, that it, it explodes that. And what I mean by that is that there's so much tension and there's so much gravity and there's so much mindfulness and choice and belonging and thinking and considering what our hands do, what our bodies do in the world building that happens with it. 
and his philosophical breath, you can feel it, right? That work, you can feel it. And this precarity, and I was actually in Korea recently. I've never been to Japan, but I was in Korea recently. And to understand what does it mean to live in a world where philosophical conditions are an aftermath of catastrophe. So I think he's able to build in a kind of humanity with these sort of philosophical conditions that he references and makes himself that allows a sort of entrance into the work that where the material, now, now he is like Reinhardt, that, that material is that meaning. And then when you walk, it draws you in, and then the composition suspends what you think um, humans can do, right? And it's all about, in my mind, the capacity of humans to both love and destroy. Those sculptures are very much about capability, impossibility, tension, and heat, right? So the, the level of mindfulness that they carry, I'm very much interested in what conditions can accomplish that kind of mindfulness while never letting go of the catastrophe? I think that that's real power in that, you know? Absolutely. And not never letting go of the catastrophe. I understand the idea of the letting go, but you understand what I'm saying. The weight of the work doesn't let go of the reason it's there. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 250 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions are two New York organisations, MTA Arts and Design, which commissions contemporary art for the subway and commuter rail stations in the city, and the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art, which focuses on the interrelationship between art and social justice for LGBTQ communities. Among the other guides on Bloomberg Connects are several museums where talk Kwase Dyson has shown her work, including the Studio Museum and Drawing Centre in New York and the Serpentine Galleries in London. Download the app and you'll discover that the guide to the Studio Museum has a feature called New Editions, a series of audio interviews with artists whose work has been acquired by the museum. The latest examples feature the painters Tunji Adenai Jones and Jade Fadogitimi. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. What do you have pinned to your studio wall? I have images of the Tareg women making architecture. I um, look to these pictures oftentimes. I also have a poster of Sam Gilliam's painting up. I have some images of my mother, Adisa Yini Madison. So my studio, my assistants tease me oftentimes. It moves constantly. So what's constant is the Tareg woman, Sam Gilliam, my mother, Tony Smith, and uh, Mary Lovelace. So those are sort of constants. So the books, there's uh, some, uh, some Mr. Lee's books are there. But right now it's a map I'm trying to figure out, which I need, I need more walls in the studio. So this <laughs> is to admit I don't have enough wall space. So I've taken down sort of my thinking wall to put up a sort of map of the development of infrastructure in the United States. So dams, levees, bridges, all of those things. So it's a sort of a, a map that begins to think about, you know, everything from Oscarville to the Hoover Dam. I'm trying to map the history of water and the built environment in the United States. So That's fascinating. And now it's that. It's sort of bare in, in pieces. <laughs> you you describe the levees and things and dams and, and other forms of architecture as shapes that force us to move. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting way. And you've, and also you've talked about architecture that we inherit as well as produce. Right. And, and all of these things are bound up in the work. In a way, within those hyper shapes and so on, these are the kind of movable forces of the work, right? Absolutely. These are things I didn't grow up knowing. So now, after you know, a few years, I've established Black Compositional Thought, the hyper shape, so I have a system. And now what I'm doing um, is expanding my research and allowing that system. I guess the practice is now allowing my own mind to conceive of something 
the scale of the Hoover Dam. Like now I can, can conceive of that being made, right? I can conceive of the cast concrete. I can conceive of the digging. I can conceive of the dispossession on a built scale that I couldn't conceive of before. So what the practice has allowed me for the last couple of years is to understand world building at a scale that I didn't necessarily understand maybe four or five years ago. And I think architects and engineers, because they go through school and they sort of work in that world building capacity, oftentimes they see those things and understand how they're built. Um, But if you put them on a timeline, um, I call it water planning. That's my new thing, Mm -hmm. like water planning. If you put water planning on a timeline um, post-emancipation, you understand that, you know, emancipation that is ongoing and something like reconstruction and then like the building of cities and roads, you know, there's something to be understood around the politic of what's happening with climate change. Because what is revealing itself is the history of segregation and equality and water planning and and dispossession and water pilling like no other because everything is um, precarious. So you understand what gives and what doesn't give, what's going to give, what needs to be repaired. And class, right, too, how that plays into infrastructure and engineering and, and, of course, the architecture that we live in and around. So, yeah, it's very much pushing and pulling Panama Canal. I visited Panama many years during grad school and undergrad and before graduate school. Many years. You know, been to the Panama Canal Museum, understand what labor, enslavement, like what global world building is and how harsh it is and how detrimental it is to family and the politics. And now I'm in a place where I can really sort of make work specifically about it as in this sort of timeline and the necessity of us trying to deal with um, new built environments that are coming off the heels of the development of the United States. It's a linear condition without a linear effect, right? That's very nice. Or a linear, without a linear affect. Yeah. So I'm trying to grapple with that on this wall so that I can make this work that I'm interested in. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? Well, that's that's a tricky question, right? I'm I'm sort of close to the Whitney, so I'm there often. Right. But when the most, when I'm in a conundrum in the studio and I'm can't, I'm stuck. I visit the Met. You know, the Guggenheim is sort of exhibition specific. You know, I don't I don't go whimsically. Just all it's it's sort of project specific. But between uh, MoMA, same thing, project specific. But to sort of roam around and sort of loosen. My muscles uh, between the Whitney and the Met. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Hurricane Katrina. I say a cultural environmental experience because that's what it was. I was teaching in Spelman at the time and I was living downtown Atlanta and Hurricane Katrina happened and a bunch of my friends had come up from New Orleans and a lot of my friends were musicians so I had loud music in my loft and lots of food. But what I did have was shock. And then I saw Spike Lee's When the Levees Broke in the moment when one of his interviewees talked about his grandmother and the refrigerator. Those two moments. And then when the engineer talked about how this should have been 44 feet and not 17 feet. So when I look back on the people that were in my house, they were in my home, and I've been to New Orleans several times. My grandfather's from New Orleans. My great-grandfather's from New Orleans. Got ran out by the KKK just all these things about New Orleans. So, but having and taking and being able to take care of and a community of people. Is it right that there were 40 people who came to your home? Yep, about 40 people who were in and out. A lot stayed the night. So the night that everyone stayed over, it was like three nights that everyone sort of stayed over and sleeping bags and cars and it was um, packed. But what happened was that the, the women who were in my house had friends and they told their friends to come over. We were being ourselves. Like, you have some musicians, you have beautiful people, there's sound, there's food. So my intention was to, with all these people, as they came in and out, my house became a kind of, you know, for several days, just the ins and outs. But, I, you know, because I wasn't living in New Orleans, I'm like, what? what's happening? I know it's below, you know, sea level, but how is this possible? How is this possible? And these are folks who prepared now. These are folks who said, okay, I'm going to prepare. I'm going to pack my stuff 
and put it up somewhere. And these are folks who had the means to get out, you know, and that changed everything. Like that was the moment that I sort of shift to both environment, built environments and trying to figure out how these people landed on my, on my doorstep. Which writers or poets do you return to? Oh, <laughs> Dion Brand, Christina Sharp. <laughs> it's like Deesoyini Madison, you know, T.S. Eliot poets. Mm. I'm a big fan of the rhythm of those poems. I'm one of those people who keeps a stack of poetry books by my bed. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's where poetry goes. It goes like right in a little bookshelf right there. Um, Audre Lorde, of course. Mm. Um, Lucille Clifton, dis- talking about discipline and rigor. Joy Harho, poetic and beautiful. I just made a, several, several drawings for Kinesia Lebrun's new book, Black Codes, coming out. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so, yeah, I love, love, love poetry. I wanted to ask you about, there's a phrase, and you and Christina Sharp talked about this, in fact, Sadia Hartman's phrase, critical fabulation. And again, talking about concepts or ideas that dovetail with yours from literature, there are loads, actually. Christina, obviously, and, and Dion Brand, as you said, you know, their, their writings, their thoughts are so deeply connected to yours in their own medium. But that idea of critical fabulation, there is, even within an abstract language, space for fabulation, right? And it seems to me that's crucial to your work. I think Saidia brought that in my studio. And I want to be, be clear. Saidia is the type of thinker when she looks at artwork, she doesn't write about it as much as, say, Christina does. But when she lands into your studio, when she's talking about your work, she is very acutely aware of meaning. And she has the capacity to bring meaning into the work that you've not necessarily put inside of the work, right? So there's a duality happening first. And then after she's put something in the work that you didn't necessarily put in the work, then she talks about it and is able to build a bridge from what you thought you were doing to what is actually happening in the work. And when Saidia came to the studio, I had to, this is something that Picasso does, stand up. Like when you're not sure, you stand up into it. You have to stand up into the work. This idea was a kind of person, and is a kind of person where you, when she's talking about your work, you have to stand up with her in the work. You have to have a kind of level of power and freedom and velocity and the way in which she thinks about and sees abstraction. She was talking about abstraction in 96, you know? So she's very far ahead of me in terms of understanding the capability and capacity of abstraction. So, yeah, I mean, critical fabulation, she brought into work and was thinking about the way in which the hyper shapes that I'm telling these stories. What could have been for Harriet? What could have been for Box? What could have been? You know, I understand what it is, but she brought it into my studio in a way that I hadn't considered it before. Like, is that, am I, am I? And yeah. And then she said, well, you're not trying to displace, you're trying to track. Like these are trying to, you're trying to see, you're trying to track, you're trying to get inside. And the way you do that is you do that with these shapes, with these equations. So she kind of blew my mind when she came in. And then I looked and I, and I just sat around my own drawings. And I said that, and I understood that, you know, a lot of things can be going on with the artwork at the same time. Yeah. Right. That artwork had a plurality, not only my senses and my desire to produce this work, right? Because I think about I need sensoria to produce the work. And now the work has um, a sort of plurality that I think Saidia pointed out really generously and, and acutely that just now feeds into my hands, like when I'm making drawing, that critical fabulation piece feeds into my hands. I try not to get so self-conscious about it because I'll start representing but then I'll just sort of work my way back from that. And then I'll enter this hauntological space, this interstitial hauntological space. Mm-hmm. Then the work is happening. Yeah, it's an interesting condition to be in conversation with a person like that. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Right now, I'm, I'm obsessed with a Spotify station that sort of starts with Evelyn's Champagne King and goes on to um, any kind of house gospel that mix oh, nice. between house and gospel. 
That's great. You know, house gospel music. There's a channel. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I was in disco house, and then I went to house gospel, and I, so I've been just traveling so much. I needed, I needed something really that lifts me up when I'm not a crazy person traveling all around. You know, I listen to maybe Anita Baker, maybe some Alice Coltrane, maybe some John Coltrane. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of that person. Yeah. You mentioned Cecil Taylor earlier on, and I know that you made a whole series of hyper-shaped drawings. And it was, yeah. each one was a minute of his music. So it was a, you kind of set yourself a task, effectively, in relation to his music. Yeah. Tell me more. So Cecil talks about this idea, you know, of creativity. And I was able to sort of based on this phrase or in his work, think about, yeah, a kind of assignment for myself that's about expanding the discipline. Mm -hmm. So he has an improvisational work that that's like a minute and 40 seconds or something like that, where I can set it on and make a drawing or 10 drawings like in that minute. But yeah, definitely I'm able to listen to his music and understand like what he's trying to get at and use that as a strategy or a container to set myself up for a drawing session. Yeah. One of the things he says, creation is what it's about, not technique. You use technique to make the statement, but the statement must be about what you have discovered in your preparation, right? So those smaller hyper-shaped drawings are about a kind of preparation, and there's so many of them that that's what it is. So it's back to that rigor and discipline versus inspiration again, isn't it? It's about that's, that's what he's saying, yeah. effectively. It's all that practice, all that time ultimately produces the work fundamentally. And it's, that's where you get the inspiration. And Lucille Clifton says, I don't wait on inspiration. Don't wait on inspiration. You have to work here. Yeah. You know, of course, earlier this year in St. Louis, you did a piece which was about Scott Joplin called Bird and Lava, Scott Joplin, a huge public project. What brought you to Scott Joplin? Well, I was invited to participate in a counter-public, and we made site visits, and James took me by uh, the Scott Joplin house, and I was um, interested in his invention of ragtime, syncopation, as a form of liberation and thinking about the piano as a technology in his book, Hyper Objects, I forget his name now. Um, Timothy Morton. In his book, Hyper Objects, he talks about this piano as a technology. So when I got to St. Louis, I remembered that in relationship to Timothy's work and then running into Scott Joplin and understanding the history of how he used the piano. I thought that within this sort of work in my practice, thinking about people who self-liberate with the tools they're given outside of the tools that they necessarily would design for themselves. How do you invent? So when I found out that um, Scott Joplin was not only making music, but plays and theater and writing and teaching, um, and how prolific he was, I was thinking about him as a liberatory figure and thinking about him as one that says, okay, I need to exhaust the possibility of this condition of sound. So to disrupt tempo, to disrupt rhythm, and to use a sort of polyrhythm, an African polyrhythm mode with this condition of a classical Western-centered can and put it together and have people angry. I found it inspiring, of course. I also found it very much in line with what counterpublic was trying to do, and this idea of commitment to like real transformation, and the idea of what does it mean to have short-term, long-term exhibitions that stay and change and are in conversation uh, with specific communities. So we moved several sites, and I landed on a site that was not across the street from Scott Joplin's house, but I still uh, wanted to hold on to what my research around uh, syncopation. And then what I had, um, the shape itself was, of course, coming out of the hyper shapes. But what was um, so fascinating to me, and it's growing in my studio, is that the hyper shapes, as I deploy them, they don't become universal. But what very much happens is that um, the shape language is very much tied to East African architecture as well as curvilinear shapes that are more modern curvilinear shapes. So that human beings, no matter 
no matter the linear way in which development has happened, whether it's a rectilinear or curvilinear condition, they only get popular in relationship to who has power, right? So I'm not going to pretend to say that, you know, I'll say that uh, mid-century architecture is not the condition where we first understand wide, vast, open spaces. That's just not the way it is. So that is to say, so thinking about cantilevers, wide open spaces, hypershapes, and things that have to do with people occupying spaces, I allowed the hypershape to sort of take the condition of the piano or try to make a visual condition of syncopation, right? So we had a moment of seriality, which I don't necessarily dive into my work, but because technology, the technology of the piano anyway, has to have a condition of seriality encoding to produce the sound. And so then I came up with the shape of the installation, and then we had a quadrilateral sound system that combined recordings of myself drawing an atmospheric sound and um, these kinds of things. And I was drawing to, like, or... You know, making marks to that, learning that in my body, in my hand, and then spreading that sound through the space. And then coming on top of that was some of um, the songs from Ragtime also moving through the space. So I wanted to make a sort of a super experiment around could I create a condition that people could inhabit zones, right? So they're different, they're like four different zones of sound, four different zones of um, occupying the space different elevations. So how do I make a, a sculpture or, or an architecture that also has a condition of sensoria, you know, multiple conditions of experiences, but look like a solid, right? And here we go with something that I think Tony Smith does well. Also, you have the solid, you turn a corner and it's, it's a huge throughway, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that kind of liberatory solid, but a huge throughway metaphorically. So it all kind of came together with the support of um, the team. That's amazing. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Drawing. That's easy. You see it as analysis, I noticed. That's a really nice idea. Again, it's a a means of analysing, and and that can mean analysing all sorts of conditions, right? I think drawing is a means of everything. A means of meditation. I mean, as you can start off a drawing with a meditation, I think drawing shapes is a means of analyzing. Because I can make drawings, but when I concentrate on the shape language, that's a means of analyzing. So I sort of start mark making and drawing is all kind of things, right? And I go into shape, making shapes, making perspectives, and then the, the analysis begins. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? I'm going to say this. Can this be a moment of critical fabulation? Yeah. Okay. So let's do that then. The work of art needs to be pluralistic. It needs to have multiple conditions attached to it. So maybe if something along like something Janet Cardiff would do, where it's an enclosure, it's sound, it's image... Something along the line of that, and one of Ronnie Horn's glass pieces inside of it. <laughs> can we borrow? Can we remix? <laughs> and lastly, what's art for? Well, it's for thinking. It's for working your synapses. It's for, you know, trying to get at life form. I don't know if it's for good or bad. I just, I think it's trying to get at what Ronaldo calls it, you know, what my art is for, Black Life Form. Torquase, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Torquase's work can be seen in the 35th Biennial of Sao Paulo, choreographies of the impossible until the 10th of December, and in the 12th Seoul Media City Biennale, this too is a map until the 19th of November. 
And that's it for this episode and indeed this series. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every week. And please subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Production, editing, and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack, and the producer is Lewis Jeb. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway, and a big thank you to Torquase Dyson. We're back on the 22nd of November. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.